On Thanksgiving 2005, 94-year-old Helen Saylor returned to her home, a high-rise apartment building for the elderly and disabled in Elkhart, Indiana. When phone calls went unanswered through the following morning, family members found Helen strangled to death, allegedly with a lanyard that had gone missing. A partial print of dubious importance was sent to the Indiana State Police Lab. Initially, Elkhart PD had two viable suspects, but the investigation went cold. The case became a priority again when a new homicide unit was formed. Detective Mark Daggy had an unfounded theory involving a string of burglaries and a younger resident at the high-rise, Lana Kanan. Investigators pressured a vulnerable friend of Lana's to claim that she had confessed to murdering Helen Saylor with another high-rise resident, a disabled man named Andy Royer, who was dragged in for a coercive interrogation resulting in a false confession. To corroborate these false statements, they pulled the prints from the Indiana State Police Lab and gave them to an untrained analyst just to get him to say the print matched Lana. Andy and Lana went to trial together and were not able to cross-examine each other to point out the glaring inconsistencies in Andy's recanted statement. Between the fabricated fingerprint match, false statements, and outright perjury by law enforcement, both Lana and Andy were sentenced to 55 years in prison. This is Wrongful Conviction. Trinity School of Natural Health can help you be part of the fast-growing health and wellness industry. With an education that empowers communities, Trinity grads can change lives by applying natural health principles and techniques in holistic practices or stores selling nourishing health products. Offering 19 online programs that fit your busy schedule, you'll get training to help turn your passion into a career. Enroll today at trinityschool.org. That's trinityschool.org. I bet you're smart. Yeah, and you like to hold your own in the group chat. We can help you drop even more knowledge. My name is Martine Powers. And I'm Elahe Izadi. We host a daily news podcast called Post Reports. Every weekday afternoon, Post Reports takes you inside an important and interesting story with the kind of reporting that you can only get from The Washington Post. You can listen to Post Reports wherever you get your podcasts. Go find it now and hit follow. Today, I'm going to give you some straightforward advice on how to deal with naughty kids. How about instead of timeouts, time ins? Time for you to start paying some bills. I'm JB Smoove, and that was a full episode of my new podcast, Straightforward. Inspired by guaranteed straightforward pricing from AT&T Fiber. Get what you want without the complicated. AT&T Fiber, live like a giggillionaire. Available wherever you get your podcast. Limited availability in select areas. Visit att.com slash hypergig for details. Welcome back to Wrongful Conviction. Today I have a case out of Elkhart, Indiana, a town that I have a bad feeling we're going to start to know really well because if just one case can involve so many of the hallmarks of wrongful convictions in a town of so few people, what else must be out there? And the case today involves a false confession, a coerced eyewitness, false expert testimony, prosecutorial misconduct, official misconduct, and a general reckless and almost total disregard for truth, justice, and public safety. And this case is not only about what happened to an elderly woman, Helen Saylor, but also the two people who were wrongfully convicted, Lana Kanan and the man who is with us today, Andy Royer. Andy, welcome to Wrongful Conviction. Thanks for having me. 
Thank you for joining us. And with him is his attorney from the Notre Dame Exoneration Justice Clinic. I've never seen someone who is more effective at breaking down the blue wall of silence. Elliot Slosar, welcome to the show. Thanks so much for having us. So tell us a little about where this story takes place. Yeah, Elkhart, you know, small town, Indiana, approximately 40, 50,000 people. I think it still considers itself the RV capital of the world. Uh, RVs are less used now than they were in the 90s, but it's a town that, you know, at its height, people were moving from all over the Midwest to go work there and work in the factories and, you know, build better lives. You know, when the RV stuff sort of slowed down is when Elkhart became more ridden with crime. That uptick ultimately produced a lot of wrongful convictions. Right. And as we saw all over the country in the 80s and 90s, you had an uptick in crime and politicians then ran, quote unquote, tough on crime campaigns, which I have to say is just nonsense. It's really just tough on people. Those things never result in a reduction in crime. But anyway, that led to an era when the authorities were just playing fast and loose with the rules and and the civil rights of our fellow Americans, arresting just about anyone in order to close cases, which, of course, as we often recognize here on the show, it leaves the true perp out on the street, ready and willing to commit more crimes in most cases. Yeah. And I think systemically, Elkhart had had police misconduct problems dating back to the 60s and 70s. There was a real lack of training in place and a real acceptance and even encouragement of police misconduct. And that stuff did not end in the 90s. And, you know, They've had a lot of wrongful convictions, five exonerations so far. Five exonerations out of a population of 50,000? Five exonerations. You know, we've got like a another dozen wrongfully convicted clients from Elkhart who are still trying to come home. And that's only like the tip of what we're uncovering there. Right. So we're talking about 17 out of a population of 50,000. And those are just the ones we know about. I mean, just to give you a comparison, by the way, there have been 330 exonerations in New York City. Now, There are plenty more people fighting for justice as we speak, innocent as could be. But still, 330 in a city of about eight and a half million people, that nets out to about four per 100,000. I think that per capita, Elkhart, Indiana, the city, will be the wrongful conviction capital in the U.S. Yeah, you know, I read another case out of Elkhart, a guy named Edgar Garrett in the 90s when interrogations were all video recorded. It's a false confession case, which preceded Andy's, but Edgar Garrett was acquitted because the jury saw the interrogation. And I bring it up to illustrate the systemic problem in Elkhart. Can you tell us about that case? What happened in the case with Edgar Garrett, he was a a father accused of murdering his child. The child wasn't found yet. The police interrogated him for 12 hours. This is like back in like 93, 94. It's all video recorded. Same interrogation rooms as, you know, Andy a decade later. When that interrogation was going on, it produced a false confession where Edgar Garrett falsely confessed to killing his daughter by hitting her over the head with like a pipe. They hadn't found the body yet. They then took Garrett to the crime scene, did a reenactment with him. A couple weeks later, they find the body. The daughter is stabbed to death like dozens and dozens of times. She wasn't killed by being hit in the head. And they're like, oh, shoot. So like in Elkhart, what they did they went forward with the death penalty trial. The jury was shown the interrogation video. They found Edgar Garrett not guilty. And the jurors were interviewed 
And what they said was, we saw that it was the cop's confession that Edgar Garrett was just repeating it, that they browbeat him into a false confession. And I mean, this is why we obviously and desperately need videotaping of all interactions with police. I'm talking about identification proceedings, witness interviews, interrogations, because when a jury witnesses how these things go down, they can better assess the validity of each of these pieces of evidence. 100%. So they do this Dateline episode, the elected prosecutors on there, Skype, Michael Constantino, and they're like, boy, you know, Mr. Constantino, this seems like you've got a problem. Like, <laughs> the guy confessed in a different way than the daughter was killed. That's a real problem. You know, weren't you concerned about that? He's like, well, you know, wasn't good for the case. Which, of course, begs the question, why did they go forward with the prosecution, let alone go for the death penalty? Yeah. So he went forward with it anyways. And so at the end of the episode, there's this fascinating thing where they're like, and we've spoken to the city of Elkhart, and they have now changed their policies, and they are no longer video recording interrogations. Okay. So faced with the reality that this man had not killed his daughter and was coerced into saying that he had... The remedy was not to reprimand the officer or figure out some safeguards against getting false confessions. No, their solution was to remove the transparency. And that, of course, set the stage for what happened in Andy's case. But before we get into that aspect of it, let's go back to before any of this happened. Andy, what was your life like growing up in Elkhart? Can you tell us a little bit about your childhood? I had a stepdad and uh, he was around for us all the time and it turned out good, so... And what were some of your favorite things to do? Swimming and playing baseball, junior minor leagues. Wow, junior minor leagues. You must have been a pretty decent athlete there, you know? It was, it was it kept me busy during the summer. So you kept busy and never were in trouble with the police. What about school? Got A's and B's. and Great. So you excelled in sports and in school. But then you later went on to qualify to live in a high-rise building, specifically for elderly people and people with disabilities, because of a tragic accident. Do you feel comfortable telling us about that? No, I don't want to. I totally understand. Is it okay if Elliot tells us about it? Yeah. Andy was working and suffered, you know, a really, really tragic accident while working, you know, one of those telephone poles. He pushed somebody out of the way. It was going to fall on another colleague. And it caused for Andy to suffer a significant traumatic injury to his hand. And so he's lost part of his middle finger. He only has half of it. He saved somebody's life in the process. But the, the fascinating thing was that the trauma that Andy endured from that experience, like, rewired his brain. And so Andy now suffers, you know, significant cognitive functioning disabilities that, like, he didn't have as a teenager. Well, Andy, I know you don't want to talk about it, but what you did was just straight heroic. And it's something you should be very proud of. I'm proud of it. Yeah, I would be too. And so you were living in this high rise, struggling to acclimate and adjust to life, having gone through this tragic accident. And that's when you befriended Lana Kanan, who ends up the second wrongful conviction survivor in this story. Now, from what I understand, a detective in this case had previously had a theory that Lana may have been responsible for a few burglaries in the high rise. Now, he had nothing to actually back that up other than that she had dated a maintenance guy there and could have plausibly, theoretically, had access to his keys. So pretty much just pure speculation, but she was on the mind of at least one detective before all of this happened. Can you tell us about your relationship to her? Yeah, I used to hang around her. She didn't seem like trouble. She's just somebody to go talk to and just as a friend. Do 
Either of you remember what brought her to the high rise? My understanding is that Lana had some sort of mental health struggle that qualified as a disability, which allowed for her to live there. I'm not sure the exact type. She was functioning at a much higher rate than Andy was at the time. And the prosecution then used that as a way to say that Andy was the muscle under Lana's control in an incident that neither of you had anything to do with, the murder of another resident at the high rise, a 94-year-old blind woman named Helen Saylor. And this blind woman, she lived alone, but she had a home healthcare worker to assist her in her daily tasks, including filling up her medications. And it's believed that she was killed sometime in the evening on November 28th, Thanksgiving, 2002. So they had a family dinner. You know, Helen was dropped off at the high rise. I think sometime in the early evening, her home health care worker called, as she usually would, to, you know, say, hey, I'm going to be there the next morning to help you out. Please, you know, have the door unlocked or whatever. And uh, there were some phone calls that were missed that night. The next morning, she also didn't answer. And so ultimately, the home health care nurse arrived. The family came. They unlocked the door. And inside, they found a deceased Helen Saylor. And one of her relatives was Elkhart PD Lieutenant Paul Converse, who initially led this investigation. Now, Helen had been strangled to death, and they believed that it may have been done with a missing lanyard, right? Uh, So she had like a lanyard around her neck that would have like her key on it. They couldn't find that. And so the thought was that if she was strangled, that it likely would have been that the, the perpetrator used that lanyard. There were no like signs of like forced entry. And so the police sort of suspected that she either opened her door voluntarily or this is somebody who like had a key. There was some like pretty significant physical evidence that was there. You know, one of the things that they found on her was like a cranberry like uh, substance, like a sticky substance around her. And they also found a pill bottle out on the counter. They ended up recovering a latent print from that pill bottle that became an issue later on in the investigation. Yeah, so there's this partial fingerprint on the pill bottle in an apartment that is frequented by home healthcare workers. But if that print belonged to someone who didn't belong in the apartment, like Lana Kanan, then that would appear to be damning evidence. Unfortunately, the subjectivity of fingerprint analysis plays heavily in this case, as it does in so many cases. Fingerprints do have a probative value, but the analysis comes down to a subjective comparison made by a highly fallible human being. This type of analysis is hardly as exact as we've all been led to believe. Now, I encourage our audience to listen to our episode of Junk Science, Wrongful Conviction Junk Science, where our host, Josh Dubin, does a deep dive on this subject. We're going to have it linked in the bio. Please check it out. And in this case, the analysis was later proven to be wholly unreliable. But let's put a pin in that for now. So we've got no murder weapon, a partial print, which may or may not have had anything to do with the crime. No signs of a break-in, which means the perp probably either knew Miss Saylor or had a key or forced their way in while the door was still unlocked. They did DNA testing of her fingernails, detecting only Miss Saylor's DNA. And then you've got what might be cranberry sauce residue, potentially from somebody's Thanksgiving leftovers. It was Thanksgiving after all, but hardly anything to go on. And this investigation happened in almost like phases, the first of which was before Elkhart PD had a homicide unit. And in this first phase, the detectives from the Criminal Investigations Division did a surprisingly good job at developing leads with this little to go on. 
these initial leads, there were two really good alternate suspects developed. The first one, and you know, this isn't a shocker. It's like, well, you want to see who the victim has contact with. How about the guy who delivers her medicine? And so they looked at this guy, Larry Wood. They went to his apartment. I believe it was the day that the body was found. He was very, very anxious, according to the officers. They found his shoes, and on the shoes was blood. And they did luminol testing inside the apartment, which confirmed it was blood. And then they took the shoes. And so they had this guy. They asked Larry at first. They were like, hey, Larry, when's the last time you saw Helen Saylor? And he's like, oh, I actually saw her on Thanksgiving evening. After she got dropped off by her family, you know, I helped her in the elevator. And that becomes important because later when Larry's confronted in an interrogation-like setting at the Elkhart Police Department, he changes his story and said, oh, I think I actually went on the elevator with her and I may have walked her into the apartment. And so Larry Wood, by all respects, was like the last person to see Helen Saylor alive. He would later fail a polygraph exam. You know, I know polygraph is an admissible evidence in court, but like this is a guy that like should have like raised every single red flag. So that was like suspect number one. Suspect number two is this guy named Tony Thomas, who was like visiting his grandmother at the high rise over that weekend. He had previously been convicted of murder in like uh, Kansas or somewhere and was acting very, very suspicious that day. And the early investigation, they spoke to people who saw Tony Thomas on the elevator clicking the buttons for every floor. And this would have been after the time that Helen Saylor got home. And so there was some real question as to whether he may have gotten off on the floor that Helen lived on and tried to take money that way uh, because he was asking other people for money in the high rise. What's fascinating about Tony Thomas You would think, hey, convicted murderer, you bring him into the police station, you'd interrogate him. There's nothing indicating that they ever did that. And the initial investigators, they didn't charge anybody. And eventually they consider the case to be cold. And so I think by like the summer of 2003, so this is, you know, roughly six, seven months later, that's when the Elkhart Police Department formed their homicide unit. Lieutenant Converse was in charge of it. This case became the first case that the homicide unit ever investigated and Lieutenant Converse, we believe, you know, was determined to close the case for a relative of his who got killed. But instead of tracking those promising leads from phase one of the investigation, the newly formed homicide unit assigned the case to lead Detective Carl Conway and Detective Mark Daggy, who took the case in the wrong direction. So what happens in this next phase of the investigation? Phase two of the investigation was how they framed Andy and Lana. By like August of 2003, this was a cold case. And Daggy was like obsessed with Lana Keenan. Like he thought that Lana had committed burglaries in the high rise because she was dating this maintenance worker. So she would have access to a key, he thought. And he could never develop probable cause to charge her with any of those burglaries. He like he kept coming after and coming after, could never charge her. And Lana was like, I didn't do any of this stuff. You know, leave me alone. You're like really annoying me. And so Daggy couldn't get her on this. So when him and Conway team up, they're like, oh, we're going to go get Lana Kanan. So on September 1st, 2003, Lana Kanan and Nita Porter are driving in a car and they get pulled over for like super minor traffic infractions. And at the time, Nina Porter was on parole. So she had a lot at risk. But in that interaction, Nina Porter was never like, I have information about a murder. Nothing like that. The only thing of value was that 
Lana was taken into custody as a result of that traffic stop. Detective Conway found out and he talked to the patrol officer and patrol officer was like, oh, yeah, Lana was with this woman named Nina Porter. And so Conway took it on his own volition to show up in Nina Porter's house the next day. And from what I understand is that Carl Conway was known for being a case closer, so to speak, who would use intimidation tactics to get what he wanted. Yeah, well, I think now Detective Conway is known for all of his feelings in this particular case. It's what led to the end of his career. But, you know, he had a reputation in the department for getting confessions and closing cases. I mean, the guy is massive. He's like probably 6'5", 6'6", 250 to 300 pounds. Sounds like a really scary guy in the interrogation room, huh, Andy? He was. He's not somebody you want showing up on your front doorstep either, like he did with Nina Porter. And the details of that interaction didn't come out until Nina testified about 15 or 16 years later in post-conviction. Can you tell us what she said about that? What Nina Porter says is that Conway shows up at her house threatening her from the jump to tell her something about implicating Lana Keenan and the murder of Helen Saylor. And Nina's like, I don't know anything. I don't know anything. He then threatens to, like, violate her parole, have her kids removed, then takes her down to the police station and interrogates the heck out of this woman who is super vulnerable. At some point, he promises her reward, too, because, you know, reward money had been offering up by um, the home health care company that, you know, assisted Helen Taylor. And so, like, just coerces the heck out of this woman for hours to fabricate a false statement implicating Lana and Andy in the murder of Helen Saylor. It is so freaking disturbing how normalized that tactic of threatening to take someone's children away is for the police. It's like as common as donuts, but much more sinister. And Nina, later in post-conviction, had so much more to say about the absurd way in which Conway took this false statement. So during a recorded statement, imagine this. Conway's showing her pictures, and on the back of it, there were phrases that she was supposed to repeat once he turned the recorder on. The story was that Lana Keenan, over the 4th of July holiday, like, stalled Nina Porter at the high-rise picnic or something and was just, like, talking about killing Helen Saylor in, like, very vague ways. And one of the things she remembered that she was supposed to say was that Lana told her Thanksgiving, thanks for giving death that that's what Thanksgiving meant to her, which is an absurd thing. And then, you know, made some other comment implicating her and Andy in the murder by saying that Lana had, like, complete control over Andy. And so she was basically the brains and Andy was the brawn. And that was something that, you know, the police had fed to her as well. Okay, so now they have the probable cause they needed to drag you and Lana in for questioning. Lana denied any involvement and was initially let go. But that's not how it went with you, Andy. Tell us about when they picked you up. I was in my apartment, and uh, I heard a knock on the door, and they said, do you want to come down, and we want to question you. And I thought, I thought nothing of it. I wasn't even sure what it was for because I, I never heard about the murder. So. And when they interrogated you over the course of September 3rd and 4th, how did they come at you? What did they say to you? We know you have ties with Lana and what she means to you, and what do you know about the murder and and what what I was trying to say is I I didn't have nothing to do with it. I, I told him that too. He just kept twisting and twisting away, repeating himself, asking me, "What'd you choke her with?" and "How'd you get in the door?" and "How was Lana involved with this?" and and it's not like they were oblivious to your cognitive impairment. Hell, it was part of their theory of how Lana could control you. 
So at some point, after hours of this intense pressure, you finally gave in, thinking that you'd be able to leave if you said what they wanted. Is that accurate? Yes. I, I just, I, I gave up. They fed me lines. And and as we have seen in so many false confessions, the lines that they fed you ended up being the only things that could be verified. While the information that solely came from you, Andy, was riddled with falsehoods, nonsense, and inconsistencies for the simple and obvious reason that you knew nothing about the crime. And Elliot, you were able to get Conway to admit to this, right? Which is insane. Can you take us through that? Well, Conway eventually admitted to, uh, this is like at Andy's evidentiary hearing, was that the only two pieces of information that they were able to corroborate that were actually true was the fact that he lived in the high rise at the time of the murder and that he knew Lana Kanan. Everything else that was like in his statement was proven to either be false or Detective Conway admitted to feeding Andy first. You know, a couple of the examples of the stuff that was false is they got Andy to say that he sold Helen Sailor's, like some of her jewelry or something at like a pawn shop. They went to the pawn shop. The records objectively proved that Andy Royer never sold anything there. Another thing is they got Andy to say that like he cleaned up the apartment with some like towels and threw them down the chute, the trash chute. During the underlying investigation, they actually learned that the trash chute was broken from like the 12th floor down or something like that. There was also another thing where, you know, they were like, you know, what liquid did you pour on her? And Andy said, milk. That was wrong because they knew it was like a cranberry sauce substance. It wasn't milk. So, like, unless Conway actually was telling him stuff that was consistent with the investigation, everything else was objectively wrong. And they knew that. And, you know, the biggest piece of evidence that we had that showed the unreliability of the statement was after the statement. According to Detective Conway's report, Andy asked, can I go home now? And Conway had to tell Andy that he just gave a confession to murder. Andy didn't even know. Right? Mm-hmm. The Pacers Foundation is a proud supporter of this episode of Wrongful Conviction and of the Last Mile Organization, which provides business and tech training to help incarcerated individuals successfully and permanently re-enter the workforce. The Pacers Foundation is committed to improving the lives of Hoosiers across Indiana, supporting organizations that are dedicated primarily to helping young people and students. For more information on the work of the Pacers Foundation or the Last Mile program, visit PacersFoundation.org or TheLastMile.org. So what they did, though, was because the the statement was so botched as they kept Andy in custody at the police department overnight after charging him with murder so that they could interrogate him the next day, which like never happens. If you get a confession that's legitimate, why you need to keep this guy the next day and interrogate him again? He had already been charged with murder. They kept him overnight. They didn't give him an attorney. He didn't get to go to court. And then they did the whole thing the next day, hoping that they could like get a more reliable statement that wasn't so obviously fabricated by coercion. Yeah, imagine if they still had to worry about their misconduct being videotaped for a jury to see. And yet, somehow, 
this still has room to get even worse. While this two-day interrogation is going on, with this very aggressive, psychologically coercive interrogator and Andy, who's got the mind of a child, there are people watching the interrogation And we only found this out after Andy was exonerated was one of the people watching it was the person who ultimately prosecuted him, that she was actually sitting there watching this psychologically coercive interrogation take place and doing nothing about it. What's her name again? Vicki Becker. Vicki Becker. And she's now the elected prosecutor of Elkhart County. Our hope is that we can end that. She was at the interrogation. She was the person who put on Detective Conway to testify at trial about the interrogation, actually elicited from him. Now, did you feed Mr. Royer any information? Conway's like, oh, no, wouldn't do that because I knew he had a mental disability. Wouldn't feed him a single fact. If she was there during the interrogation, which she says she is, she would have known what Conway now admits, which is that he fed Andy all the information that actually aligned with the facts of the case. Whatever those facts were, it came from Conway's mouth. And in Detective Conway's own report, he admitted that before he took Andy's confession, that Andy was confused, he was fatigued, and he's later admitted that he believed that Andy was mentally broken before he ever took the statement. And had this been videotaped, like Edgar Garrett's interrogation, had the jury seen this, it would have impeached everything, all the lies that Detective Conway had to say at trial. And if the evidence in this case wasn't fraudulent enough, that brings us to the only physical evidence, the fingerprint. So in phase one, they sent the medicine bottle and other physical evidence off to the Indiana State Police Lab. And eventually, they sent fingerprints of suspects, aka standards, for comparison. But in phase two, when Conway and Daggy got involved, something telling happened with the prints. Conway and Daggy's story was that Andy and Lana first came on their radar through Nina Porter's coerced statement in September 2003. In August of 2003, though, before Nina and Lana were pulled over, the Elkhart Police Department removed the physical evidence from the Indiana State Police Laboratory and sent it to a deputy sheriff at the Elkhart County Sheriff's Department named Dennis Chapman for him to compare the latent print to Andy Royer's standard, not only Andy, but, but Lana Kane as well. They were literally targeting Lana and Andy before they manufactured that false evidence during the first week of September. Chapman, come to find out, never trained to do latent comparisons at all. And Dennis Chapman writes like a two-page report that says that he matches the print from the medicine bottle to the left pinky finger of Lana Kanan. Come to find out, it ended up not being a pinky finger at all. It was like the index finger to somebody he excluded, a home healthcare worker. So like he got the finger wrong, the person wrong, and then he somehow excluded the right person, which all of that shows it was just like a total fabrication. Like this guy was not doing a legitimate comparison. He was just doing whatever the Conway an EPD wanted him to do. You might as well have my dog look at it. I mean, it would be just the same, right? Because like Chapman is a total fraud anyways. Right. And that's even unfair to my dog because Freddie would never do something like yeah. that. Yeah. So they, so like we see him as like Elkhart's hired gun, you know, this untrained, unqualified deputy sheriff 
that when the Elkhart prosecutor's office or the Elkhart police department was concerned that the Indiana state police laboratory wouldn't give them the findings that they want, they would remove it and send it to this illegitimate proxy who would then fabricate an opinion for them for whoever their suspect was. I shudder to think, but how many other cases has Chapman been involved in? So we are digging into Chapman now. He had been used by the Elkhart Police Department to do latent print comparisons dating back to the 1990s. So we actually have another wrongful conviction case from Elkhart. That's a murder from like 2000 that Vicki Becker was the prosecutor on. And lo and behold, the week before trial in that case, Dennis Chapman was brought in to exclude all the alternate suspects from the print left on what they allege was a murder weapon. Wow, this is a Pandora's box of of evil. And he only stopped giving them opinions in 2011-ish when Lana Kanan's post-conviction petition unraveled the fact that his opinion was false all along. So almost 20 years worth of cases, this guy Chapman, who has no formal training to do fingerprint analysis, would just come in and testify as an expert. You've got a real problem in Elkhart. And Andy was just another one of their countless victims. So they had this in, and I'm putting this in quotation marks, fingerprint match. Nina Porter saying that Lana confessed to her and implicated you, Andy. And then they had Andy's false confession. Andy, you had been in jail for two years now, and they came to see you with your defense attorney to see if they could get you to testify and repeat your false confession. But this time, you wouldn't do it. How did that all play out? They just kept asking me questions again and making sure everything was okay. And I was like, no, I I didn't have nothing to do with the murder. Of course they knew that already. So now it's August 2005, and you walk into court. What was that like? Uh, I felt like a stiff board walking down the aisle and going into uh, sit down in the courtroom and and v- Vicky Becker was, well, we got this and we got that and they never asked me or my attorney never did anything at the time. Yeah, you had a defense attorney who had just heard you vehemently recant your false confession, yet he made no effort to suppress that statement. And from what I understand, when he was given a list of false confession experts, like Dr. Richard Leo, Dr. Offshe, that he called exactly zero of the names on that list up to testify. And Elliot, we've seen plenty of cases with multiple co-defendants, but this one really is problematic. And it's hard to believe this was allowed to go forward as one trial. Can you explain what I'm talking about? Because like Ole and Elkhart, Indiana, when you have a situation where you have two co-defendants, one of them falsely confesses and implicates his other co-defendant. And then Nina Porter attributes a confession to Lana Keenan that the state then tries to use against Andy. So it's constitutionally problematic because Lana can't force Andy on the stand. Like he has a right to not testify. Andy can't put Lana on the stand to say that she never made these statements to Nina Porter. And the state's like using all of this evidence to convict both of them at the same time. Like the trial should have been severed. You know, the trial was about two days, excluding jury selection. And, you know, the state just like completely ran over the defense. So you had the latent print fabrication introduce a trial. Conway goes up there, introduces Andy's two recorded statements which total and length are roughly just over an hour combined. So like, you know, you basically have like eight to nine hours of unrecorded interrogation 
where Andy, who had the mind of a child, is psychologically coerced into giving a false confession, fed all the facts. Conway testifies at trial in response to questioning by Ms. Becker, never fed him any information, you know, never coerced him anyway, wouldn't do that, you know, knew that he had a disability, all of that, a lie. And then Nina Porter went up there on the stand and testified that Lana gave this confession to her to doing the murder, you know, Thanksgiving, thanks for giving death, and that she had complete control over Andy to the extent that if Lana said, Andy, go stand in the rain, that he would go do it. And the state in closing arguments were like, the print corroborates the confession. The confession corroborates Nina Porter. Nina Porter corroborates both of it. Look at everything together. You've got your puzzle. Convict these people. And the jury did what the prosecutors wanted. And did they present anything in your defense at all? No. I felt it was all one-sided. No witnesses. No defense witnesses. No. And not even like no defense witnesses, but like the police officers went up there and testified to the jury that they never had any alternate suspects. And we know that's a lie. Like Larry Wood, Tony Thomas, people were straight up committing perjury left and right. So, Andy, when you saw this circus unfolding in front of you, did you still hold out any hope that the jury would come back in and get it right? Yes, I was hoping yes. But... As we know, with all the lying and fabricated evidence, it was probably, well, hard to somewhere near impossible for them to see the truth. So can you tell us about that awful moment when they did get it so wrong? I felt nothingness. I was just numb. They took me back to the uh, jail cell, and I just walked in like... not seeing a ghost, but I was the ghost. Trinity School of Natural Health can help you be part of the fast-growing health and wellness industry. With an education that empowers communities, Trinity grads can change lives by applying natural health principles and techniques in holistic practices or stores selling nourishing health products. Offering 19 online programs that fit your busy schedule, you'll get training to help turn your passion into a career. Enroll today at trinityschool.org. That's trinityschool.org. The 2024 presidential campaign features two candidates who are very well-known to Americans. And yet, there's complexity at every turn. Criminal trials for one of those candidates. Young voters who are angry. The Campaign Moment podcast from The Washington Post gives you what matters. I'm Aaron Blake, and I'm covering my 10th election cycle. My colleagues and I have insights that you won't find anywhere else. So follow the Campaign Moment right now, wherever you're listening. Today, I'm going to give you some straightforward advice on how to deal with naughty kids. How about instead of timeouts, time ins? Time for you to start paying some bills. I'm J.B. Smoove, and that was a full episode of my new podcast, Straightforward. Inspired by guaranteed straightforward pricing from AT&T Fiber. Get what you want without the complicated. AT&T Fiber, live like a giggillionaire. Available wherever you get your podcast. Limited availability in select areas. Visit att.com slash hypergig for details. I got to know people right off the hand. I, I found me a job, so I kept busy most of the time. 
uh, working in a wood factory making skids. And the people from the outside come and pick up the skids, and we got paid for it. We got like 50 cents an hour, and if we got so many skids done, we got five or uh, it was either five cents or a penny for each skid that got done. So a lot of people don't know a very important and insidious thing about the 13th Amendment, which is that it did end slavery, but they left a loophole in there. And the loophole is that it doesn't apply to people who aren't free. So that meant that if they put people behind bars, like they did to you, Andy, they can enslave you. They can pay, in some states, they pay four cents an hour and charge a tax on top of that. Other states, it's 19 cents an hour. And tons of products, everyday products that many of us use. License plates, for instance, are made in these prisons. Big corporations use this slave labor. It's a huge problem, and it creates a perverse and reverse incentive for people to lock up other people because there's money in it. So here you have a system in Elkhart where it appears they deliberately wrongfully convicted Andy and countless others at a rate that's at least, get this, eight times higher per capita than a place like New York, which has a long and sordid history of wrongful convictions. And the same prosecutor that is still in office today made Andy and so many others essentially into slaves. Yes. I worked in the kitchen, too, and they they pay 50 cents an hour. So were you able to make any friends while you were in there? Oh, yeah. Lots of friends. Played board games. I was in the honor dorm. People that didn't get in trouble. If you got one little write-up, you'd get kicked out. And I was there for two years and never got a write-up. And You could go outside and uh, walk around or play basketball. And uh, I uh, caught a write-up once before I got in the outer, honor dorm. I fell asleep and went to the chow hall. Then I went back and went to the chow hall again. And uh, they had a scanner and I got a, I accidentally got two meals. So this is probably like the worst thing you've ever done. Yes. <laughs> Needless to say, you didn't belong there and desperately needed help. And your first appellate lawyer did bring a compelling, ineffective assistance claim based on the fact that your trial lawyer never tried to suppress the false confession of his disabled client and never bothered to call a false confession expert like Dr. Leo or Dr. Afshi. And then one thing that sticks out in my mind here is that the trial lawyer said in his own defense that this was actual strategy. Okay. He said that in Elkhart, the jury wasn't going to believe an expert. From outside the community. From outside the community, yeah. But what's ironic about this logic here is that because Dennis Chapman's from within the community, they'll believe him, right? I mean, it was an outrageous explanation by the attorney, but the judge overseeing that claim was this guy, Terry Shoemaker. He was the prosecutor on Edgar Garrett's case, who we found out excluded Richard Offshee from testifying as a false confession expert at that, that mid-90s trial, saying... False confession expert testimony should never be before a jury because it invades the province of the jury. So when this guy now who's on the on the bench, he's never like, hey, Mr. Royer, just want you to know as a prosecutor, I took the position that these types of people should never be allowed in a courtroom. Never disclosed it. Denied Andy's post-conviction petition. He sat in prison for like another decade. The judge should have recused himself. And that's when I think, you know, we start talking about systemic misconduct. I mean, frankly, 
when I said the words that there were systemic police and prosecutorial misconduct that caused wrongful convictions in Elkhart, Indiana, including Andy Royer's, the state filed a motion for an injunction against me. The state court judge found that like when I said systemic misconduct, that that was defamatory. You know, what's amusing now is that that judge, former Elkhart County prosecutor, she withheld from us that she was also married to a former corrupt Elkhart cop in the 90s. Right. Like this is like when you talk about systemic, it's like you're going before judges who are former prosecutors married to Elkhart police officers. Like that is the system in Elkhart that is like allowed for people like Andy to get wrongfully convicted in like open view. The whole system is stacked. You don't have a chance. And that's how you end up with five going on 17 exonerations and counting in a town of 50,000. So, Andy, how did you end up getting in touch with Elliot? Oh, through uh, one of my lawyers, Michael Sutherland. He put a newspaper article out saying how wrongfully I was done, and Elliot happened to see it and took up the case from there. Yeah, so it's funny. You know, this goes back to the systemic Elkhart misconduct. By the time that I found out about Andy's case, we had another client who was exonerated by them by the name of uh, Keith Cooper. Who we'd like to cover in the very near future, if you'll both join us. Yeah. And so Keith had been wrongfully convicted. You know, he was framed for a crime he didn't commit to. And the Indy Star started like a wrongful conviction series, I want to say in like 2015, 2016. Keith then was still trying to get a pardon, an actual innocence pardon from the governor. And as part of that series, they did a story ultimately on Andy. I want to say this was like 2017. So, okay, you saw the article. You and Sutherland got in touch. What happened next? You know, I was like desperate to get my hands on the material. My wife and I were going on a vacation to Mexico and I had just gotten like the trial transcripts. And I just remember that whole vacation, like being on the beach under an umbrella, read through the whole trial, was like reading through the police reports and was just like, oh my God, this guy got so framed. You know, so by this time, we had a project going at Notre Dame Law School, and Andy's case was the first one that we ever worked on. And so we had a number of like great students on the case, an incredible investigator named Patty, and we went out and like knocked on a ton of doors. So I'm going to imagine that Nina Porter got a visit. Yeah, Nina Porter was actually the first witness that we talked to. You know, by then, you know, to put this in context, by the time we talked to Nina Porter, Lana Keenan, his co-defendant was exonerated. And, and sought civil compensation. Andy's like still sitting there. You know, even the, the attorney who had this before us, he filed a motion for leave to even file a post-conviction petition in the appellate court. Denied. Like they weren't letting Andy Royer even get back to court. I mean, it was like fundamentally outrageous. So Lana, she got an incredible post-conviction lawyer, Kara Winicky, who dug into the latent print stuff. You know, like Dennis Chapman, total fraud. Kara Winnicky is the one who unraveled that fraud. They ended up getting a lane print expert, excluded Lana Keenan, found all these differences that couldn't be explained away. That science is very subjective. What's fascinating is they file a post-conviction petition. State challenges it. At some point, the state sends the print materials off to the Indiana State Police Lab. Indiana State Police Lab's like, this excludes her. They still go to an evidentiary hearing, even though the state lab says not Lana Keenan's, the private person says not Lana Keenan's. Right around the time of the evidentiary hearing, Chapman gets a chance to look at it and sees the print and immediately starts admitting that he got it wrong. 
That was after he already saw, you know, what the private expert was saying. So he knew that other people were saying that he was wrong by then. They go to the evidentiary hearing. The state does an aggressive cross-examination of Chapman. Like it was self-preservation mode. You know, Vicki Becker's still prosecutor in the office. She put him on the stand trial. It was a different deputy prosecutor doing the cross. But it was like saving his boss, right? Like make this guy look like he's a fraud and that he duped all of us and that none of us knew about it all along. To save face for the system as a whole. Exactly. So then eventually before a ruling is made, the state agrees to a new trial for Lana and the case gets dismissed. Now, one would think this should have an effect on her co-defendant, Andy. 100%. It's so crazy. They used that evidence at Andy's trial. And still they were like, you know what? We've got this disabled guy. We're just going to leave him in prison. He hasn't had the right to representation. He hasn't had the funds for private representation. We're going to leave him there. We're going to see if they're able to unravel everything else that happened. All right. So back to Nina Porter. One of our law students, me and our investigator, we knocked on Nina Porter's door. She was like, I've been waiting 15 years for somebody to ask me how this whole thing came about. And she told us in painful detail how she was coerced into lying against Andy and Lana for a crime they didn't commit. So Nina Porter recanted. The print is toast, which brings us to the false confession. So did you reach out to any of the false confession experts that Andy's trial attorney should have called in the first place? Well, we called Dr. Leo. He began digging through the material. But what really changed things in addition to our investigation, you know, so like patting the students, knocked on doors, got a ton of affidavits, people implicating Larry Wood, people implicating Tony Thomas. We also had a former Elkhart police officer, Larry Towns. He actually called Mark Daggy and was recording the entire conversation. And Larry was chatting him up about this case. And Daggy admitted there that the interrogation, he witnessed it. He said he believed that it was actually video recorded and that the interrogation was super leading and among the worst he had ever seen. He had no idea that a recorder was on. You know, this was like two police officers talking to each other. And so he made these admissions. Towns also called another person who was involved in the investigation, watched the interrogation, this person, Peggy Snyder. And she admitted that she always believed Andy was innocent. She was the one who signed the charging documents, who sought the warrant for Andy's arrest for the murder and was admitting in this call, I always thought that guy was innocent. So they didn't think that Larry would ever tell. And they surely didn't think that this other police officer would ever record them. But he did because he was so fundamentally outraged. Okay, so we not only have an expert poking huge holes in the false confession, but also two people who were in the room who didn't think that anyone would be breaking down their sacred blue wall of silence. But then on top of that, your involvement in Keith Cooper's case had a direct effect on Andy, as it turns out. In Keith Cooper's wrongful conviction lawsuit, we were able to do depositions of Conway and Daggy, and that's where things finally unraveled because those depositions uncovered the truth about what happened in the interrogation room Conway finally admitted defeating Andy information, admitted that he believed that he was psychologically broken down, admitted that he was informed prior to the interrogation that Andy was mentally disabled and had the mind of a child, and then testified under oath that he disregarded all of that, gave no accommodations to his disability. Like, this is all like in a deposition. You know, this guy was making all these admissions that were like completely contrary to what he testified to at trial. Elliot. I got to hand it to you, man. What you were able to do here, this is not normal. I mean, this is nothing short of, and I'm not like a magical thinker, but this shit is just miraculous. 
the things you've been able to uncover are shocking. And what was also shocking that we found out through the depositions was that Conway was removed from the homicide unit of the Elkhart Police Department before Andy's 2005 trial for misconduct in another interrogation in a different homicide case, was removed. So he got to the bottom of it and ultimately had his supervisor testify for us at the evidentiary hearing that he removed Conway because he believed that he lied in order to interrogate another person without their counsel present, and that his lie in that case, the supervisor believed, could jeopardize the integrity of any further criminal investigations that he worked on and would cause credibility issues at trial, so they removed him from the homicide unit. This all happened before Andy's trial. Conway was like the most important witness at Andy's trial because like only Conway could either admit or deny what happened in the interrogation room before a recorder was turned on, and yet the state withheld the fact that this guy was removed from homicide due to issues with his credibility and integrity. Conway also further admitted to feeding Andy all the information and that Vicki Becker watched it all happen and put Conway on the stand to lie anyway. And Chapman had already been exposed as a fraud in Lana's post-conviction. By the way, Dennis Chapman, we ultimately got his personnel file. What Dennis Chapman admitted after Keenan got exonerated, Chapman had to sit down with the sheriff and, and explain how he botched that print so badly. And in that interview, he said that he was pressured by Elkhart police officers to form an opinion that they told him the theory of the case, that Lana Kanan was the brains, that Andy Warrior was the brawn, that Andy couldn't do this on his own. So they fed him who they wanted him to ID and then pressured him into making that fabricated ID. You also had those recordings of Daggy and that supervisor. Daggy repeated what he had said on the recording on the stand as well. I mean, like the state's case imploded. And Nina Porter testified for us, too. She told the court how she was coerced into repeating a fabricated statement. And by the way, while Andy was like wrongfully convicted, you know, within like 48 hours of that, Daggy and another officer went and gave her the $2,000 reward. That was never disclosed. You know, like nobody ever knew that she was pressured into lying and that like, oh, as soon as she got off the stand, she was going to be given thousands of dollars. So there they are using the carrot and the stick. So how did it all end up with Andy being here with us today? When was this this long overdue hearing? September into October of 2019. And the fascinating part about it is that we agreed to only litigate like really like a fourth of what it was in our petition. Yeah, you know, we were like, judge, you know, like, let's just do five or six issues. Like, because if we went on those issues, we don't need to get to the other 20. Wow. So you really were ready to embarrass the state further than you even needed to in order to convince the court that a new trial was in order. And the court agreed with you. So, Andy, what was it like watching this shit show from your perspective? Like, there was a Superman on my side. And uh, I just couldn't believe the lawyers before Elliot didn't do anything. You know what I mean? Just... They just, here you go, gave it to the prosecutor. Yeah, so safe to say that Elliot is a good guy in your book. Yes, he's a cool guy. Uh, he's uh, got the record straight now, so he's all right, around great guy. Thanks, Andy. Thank you. So you've just watched Superman come in and kick some serious ass, right? Right. But uh, this being Elkhart, they're not going to just start doing the right thing now. We got this case kicked out of Elkhart County. That's why you need to get justice. Right. So like we got that judge to recuse herself. Uh, she actually found that it was defamatory when I said that Andy was wrongfully convicted. 
Like it wasn't just like systemic misconduct. It was like this judge is like the most unfair judge that we could ever be before. And how this judge is oblivious to the system she's been overseeing is ridiculous, but okay. Yeah. So Andy's case, outside of Elkhart Canyon, we litigated in Kosciuszko County before this super kind, really smart, fair judge. The whole proceeding was like very, very fair to both sides. And we felt like we had a real chance given the case that we put on. And we submitted proposed findings after the hearing. The state did as well. And we waited. And when that phone call happened, they're like, hey, Elliot, how far away are you? Uh, because Andy is ready to get picked up. The judge granted a new trial on March 31st. And I was like, in a meeting with other students on a different Elkhart wrongful conviction case. Like we were in a Zoom meeting because everything was through Zoom then. And I was like, oh my God, guys. Oh my God. Andy just got a new trial. He's getting released. I got to go. And I ran upstairs, put on a suit. I was like calling uh, Andy's parents, Jeannie and Mike. And, you know, obviously one of the most incredible phone calls that I'll ever have. And like Andy's coming home. Like we've all got to figure this out. Somebody go buy mask. You know, like my wife was like, like seven months pregnant at the time. Like I wasn't leaving the house at all. Right. So this was the beginning of the pandemic. No one knew how bad this was going to be yet, but you forged ahead. No hesitation. Drove so fast. I called the students. You know, we all sort of like agreed to to meet at the jail to to welcome Andy home. So finally, when I got to Kosciuszko jail, I said, you're being released. I was like, wow. I started shaking. <laughs> Color started coming back to my face and I, I started feeling like a person again. It was just unbelievable. It was, there's no no words to put it out there. So, Wow. Yeah, I can only imagine. And this judge didn't have to do what he did, which was to release you on a recognizance bonds. It seems because he was so convinced of Andy's innocence that he didn't want to see Andy back in prison, even for another day, waiting for a new trial, while the state and COVID dragged this thing out. So Andy was released. The state appealed the ruling for a new trial, and the appellate court affirmed the ruling, stating, and this is a, Quote, Detective Conway withheld the truth when he attempted to bolster the reliability of Royer's confessions by saying Royer knew details about the murder which were not known to the public. Again, just like Chapman, now it was Conway's turn to be under the bus. And the appellate court ruled Detective Conway that his continued employment at the Elkhart Police Department was galling and found that he committed perjury back at Andy and Lana's 2005 trial. And after that happened, we put pressure on the city of Elkhart and the Elkhart chief of police. You know, we were calling for Conway's termination and the chief who has a ton of integrity. Finally, they have a chief of police there who wants to change things and is trying to change things. Wrote up a 10 page notice of termination to Detective Conway about the egregious misconduct that he committed in this case. Well, we'll see if he's actually ever criminally pursued like one of us mere mortals would be, but at least he can't do any more damage. So the new trial ruling was upheld on appeal. Then what happened? After the appellate court decision, we filed a motion to suppress. That was like the first time that anybody had ever filed a motion to suppress for Andy, saying that his confession was false, involuntary, and unconstitutional and should be not admitted at the trial. And the state's response was to not respond and dismiss the case. Right, because they knew. They always knew. So Andy's name was finally cleared on July 19, 2021. Conway and Chapman are disgraced. Vicki Becker still needs her comeuppance. 
and it appears that she's currently running unopposed in November 2022. Now, I'm not sure if it's too late to change that, but we hope for so much worse for her. And Andy, is there anything that you'd like to call on our audience to do or to support anything that you'd like to see happen? I just hope that they've done wrong, so they should pay for it. Yeah, I absolutely agree. And I hope that comes to pass. So now we go to closing arguments where, first of all, I thank you both from the bottom of my heart for being here and sharing your incredible story. I know it must be difficult to drudge up all of these emotions. So thank you for being brave and and doing just that. And now I'm going to shut my microphone off, leave my headphones on, kick back in my chair and just listen to any final thoughts you guys have. Elliot, please kick it off for us. And Andy, you take us home. You know, I think Andy's case shows the need for why interrogation should be video recorded, you know, from beginning to end. Andy was like among the most vulnerable in our community and was manipulated and coerced into confessing to something that wasn't true. And it's heartbreaking. And it was completely preventable. The state, you know, the prosecutor was watching the interrogation. Other officers were watching the interrogation. They could have stopped it at any point. You know, they didn't have to charge him. They knew it wasn't reliable. And instead, you know, it's pretty clear what happened here. They just wanted to close a case. And they sadly did that through framing an innocent, really, really innocent, not only like in this case, but like Andy's just like an innocent human being. And the students at Notre Dame and our team work so, so hard to show the injustice and to bring Andy home. And in Andy's name, we hope to do that for so many other innocent people from Elkhart. Uh, I just want to thank everybody that worked on my case and the law students and the people that believed in me. My mom and my stepdad and family and they they brought me through a lot I didn't know how to get through it but I did thank you thank you for listening to wrongful conviction I'd like to thank our production team Connor Hall, Jeff Clyburn and Kevin Wardis with research by Lila Robinson The music in this production was supplied by three-time Oscar-nominated composer Jay Ralph. Be sure to follow us on Instagram at Wrongful Conviction, on Facebook at Wrongful Conviction Podcast, and on Twitter at Wrong Conviction, as well as at Lava for Good on all three platforms. You can also follow me on both TikTok and Instagram at It's Jason Flom. Wrongful Conviction is a production of Lava for Good Podcast in association with Signal Company Number 1. Trinity School of Natural Health can help you be part of the fast-growing health and wellness industry. With an education that empowers communities, Trinity grads can change lives by applying natural health principles and techniques in holistic practices or stores selling nourishing health products. Offering 19 online programs that fit your busy schedule, you'll get training to help turn your passion into a career. Enroll today at trinityschool.org. That's trinityschool.org. From BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast, is going on a road trip. I thought 
in that moment, oh my God, we've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house, and I screamed. Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts. If you dare. Zumo Play is your destination for endless entertainment. With a diverse lineup of 350-plus live channels, movies, and full TV series, you'll easily find something to watch right away. And the best part? It's all free. Love music? Get lost in the 90s with iHeart 90s. Dance away with hip-hop beats and more on the iHeart Radio music channels. No logins, no signups, no accounts, no hassle. So what are you waiting for? Start streaming at play.xumo.com or download from the app and Google Play stores today. All you can stream with Zumo Play.